I want to talk with you about uh, the concept of disciplining our devotion. You know, one of the challenges uh, for us as Christians is reconciling a gospel of grace, a gospel that is not something that we work for, uh, the gospel, that it, what sets it apart from religion is the gospel. Religion says, live like this and God will accept you, while the gospel says, God has accepted you uh, through Jesus Christ, now live like this. It's a different foundation. And we always say that grace uh, really uh, is defined as a gift that is given and must be freely received. And yet, everything in life that's worth having has to be worked for. <laughs> and that the most powerful things in life um, are usually the most difficult pleasures. Uh, nothing is more difficult than the pleasure of relationship, which I believe is the essence of existence. Uh, and it is the essence of what it means when it says that we are made in the image of God. We often think uh, incorrectly about what it means to be made in the image of God. We think of the image of God means that we can think and feel and will. Uh, which is a classic, uh, a classic reformed understanding of being made in the image of God and really has its origin more in Greek philosophy than it does in, in the scriptures. The scriptures declare that being made in the image of God essentially means that we were made for relationship because God himself is a community within himself. When he says it's not good that man be alone, that wasn't just for those who are getting married, that is a general proposition over human existence. The essence of hell is a place where a relationship does not exist. The essence of heaven is a place where a relationship is restored in a threefold way, a right relationship with God, a right relationship with others, and a right relationship with ourselves. And so I think that the challenge of functioning in the gospel uh, and the measurement of that success or failure is actually defined not by how much you know, not by how much you don't sin, if you're still defining sin as the little things you do wrong, which is a really bad definition of sin. Sin is not a measurement of how bad you are. It's really more of a measurement of how good you're not. Uh, you're not a bigger failure than God already knows you are, so take a breath. Uh, Sin is really, in its essence, is a rebellion against God's sovereign rule over your life. That's what sin is. Sin is, I will be my own God, which is the essence of secular society, the society in which we live, where the individual is the end and the means. I am the most important thing in my universe. That is the motto of the age in which we live. And so how do we function as children of grace? How do we actually live uh, out the gospel? Because the gospel, though it may be freely received, we're also told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, he said enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction, he goes, but narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. A lot of people, and he says, there are few who find it. And we're like, does that mean only a few are saved? That is not a, a conversation about who's saved and who's not saved. That is a conversation about discipleship. That's a fulfillment of the fact that most Christians live with this motto written over their heads. Wasted life, saved soul. And that should not be the motto that we live with. 
Christianity, as Chesterton said, is not tried and found wanting. It is found difficult and not tried. For the most difficult thing in life is to be in authentic relationship. You know, the only gauge that you and I are truly followers of Christ is to find uh, and the only evidence to the world that we truly belong to Jesus is actually, according to Jesus, they will know you are my disciples by what? Your knowledge? No. We're going to talk about the importance of knowledge, but it has to be tempered by what? Love. And not just your love for anyone, but your love for what? Your love for one another, speaking of the community of faith. Isn't it interesting that the gospel over the last 40 years has had an emphasis upon an individualistic um, approach to Jesus? The gospel's about you and your decision for Jesus. Well, first of all, this is bad theology. The gospel is about God's decision to not exist without broken humanity. The gospel is about God reaching into our broken, self-centered lives and showing us a new way, the agape way, by bringing us into the presence of Christ. Our salvation is us saying yes to the yes that God has already declared over us in Christ Jesus. And so as we respond to that gospel, what it should produce in us is a gratitude, a center, a foundation by which we live. And that foundation is played out in how we love one another. And we have turned the gospel into, it's about you and your personal relationship with Jesus when really we are not saved into a vacuum. If God himself is a community within himself, the true effects of regeneration in the believer's life is that I no longer live for myself nor from myself as the center of meaning but I live from a new foundation, the foundation of Christ, which is played out in the giving of myself to those around me, especially the, the community of faith in which God has placed me. And so as non-believers come into reliance, church, I would ask you, are they compelled by the love of Christ? A love that is manifested in the ways that you care for one another. This is the struggle of the Christian life. This is where we find that, dang, it's hard because you don't get to pick your family. Isn't that hard? I mean, our own families are hard enough to love. For me, the hardest to love. My alcoholic, drug-using curmudgeon of a father, it is my responsibility to love him and honor him. And, And that requires that I speak truthfully to him, but it also requires that I put myself in his presence to do so, which is not always a fun thing to do, uh, especially because he's a man that does not know Jesus. I have a responsibility to give myself away as a child of the kingdom. And that is the work, guys. But it's a work that functions from a foundation of victory that we already have in the gospel. So having said that, I want to talk about the disciplining of our devotions because you will never discipline yourself toward godliness if it does not flow out of a right devotion or right center. You don't work hard so that Jesus is impressed because that will always end in defeat. It ends in legalism. Nor do we just sit by and watch the world literally go to hell uh, and say, well, you know, that's their problem. I'm chosen. They're not. Or, you know, we're saved by grace and God's going to do what God's going to do. Probably not a very beneficial outlook either because 
Jesus says there's a final judgment and it seems to be for everyone and the judgment's based upon how we gave ourselves away to others. So he's not gonna be like, I know my Bible. He's gonna be like, great. Away from me, I never knew you. Because the essence of everything we do is, is to bring about an authentic relationship with Christ that plays itself out and a self-giving to one another. And it is only then that we can truly begin to understand who we are called to be. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I know traditionally Mother's Day messages are supposed to be light. But being a mother is no light thing. So I think, ladies, if anyone can handle it, it can be you. So just urge your husbands to just stick with me, okay? Because we know that you have the gumption. <laughs> I always say that women understand the cross-centered life better than men uh, because they give up so much to raise children. And I saw what my son and daughter, my wife got one child when she married me, and then she had two real children. And, and all of it has put beautiful silver hairs on her head. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry I did that, but it does look good. You do wear it well. First um, Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Paul writing to a young pastor of a church, giving him encouragement on how to actually shepherd the church well. And he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves. So this is the tendency of the human art, to devote ourselves to the wrong things. It's what we call idolatry, actually. Idolatry is making things supreme in your life, anything, whether it's good or bad. Idolatry is not giving yourself to heroin or prostitution or other really obviously bad things. Idolatry is when you elevate anything in your life above Jesus Christ. That can be your job, that can be your children, that can be your husband, your wife, that can even be your hope for a future husband, a future wife. Whatever it is that captivates your mind, that is what defines you and that is your God. And just know that the moment you kill one God, as Calvin said, the heart is a hum- the human heart is an idol factory. You pull up one and you just discover a new one. Jesus is constantly asking us to lay down our idols, to smash smash the idols uh, at the foot of the cross. And so he says, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Now, just know that Paul is leading Timothy to, to maintaining the centrality. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? We preach Christ and him crucified. The Jews seek after what do they seek after? They seek after signs. The Greeks seek after knowledge. Those are the two great peripherals, I think, even in the church today. I think in the Reformed tradition, um, you have an elevation of knowledge as the ultimate. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. I think on the hyper-charismatic side, you have experience as, as the ultimate uh, the ultimate evidence of, and one breeds pride and knowledge, the other breeds pride and experience, both miss the mark if we lose Jesus as our center. And this is what Paul is warning. He's not, this church that is getting wrapped up in myths and endless genealogies and controversial speculations are not outside of the realm of orthodoxy. They're Christians who have lost their center. And he says, you have to fight because the natural tendency of the human heart is to move from its center and to lose its equilibrium. 
And what happens when Jesus is not real to us, when the living Christ is not a tangible presence in our lives, the natural tendency as Christians is we get desperate and so we start giving ourselves to secondary issues and we start making secondary issues supreme. And, and every church will have, every, every movement, every denomination will always seem to have its, its points of weakness, its, its unhealthy underbelly. And, and Calvary Chapel is not immune to this. I think that a, a classic example when I worked, uh, and it's one of, one of the things I, I love um, about Ted and what he's done at Reliance is, is there's a tempering, there's a wisdom that he's learned both from the victories as well as the mistakes of a movement that's ran by fallen people, just like every movement. Uh, but in, in, the, in my first job at a, at, at a Calvary Chapel, there was an obsession with prophecy. I mean, this was in the peak of the Left Behind series. I mean, which we, you know, we should just all say we're sorry, Jesus. Uh, we're sorry for just the horridly bad writing, period, just bad literature. It's not literature. It's pop, it's pop fiction. The moment we take the scriptures and turn it into fiction, we actually eradicate its power and authority. Uh, but I, I think of the, the six-hour prophecy updates I would sit through on New Year's Eve that were derived more from speculative newspaper theology than it was from the Bible. I mean, nobody is benefited by this game, pin the tail on the Antichrist, because what I found is that they were usually wrong. Uh, and evangelicals, uh, it's, especially evangelicals over the, last, uh, over the last 30 years, I mean, I think of the very first book that, that brought prophecy to the forefront of the, of, of the American Christianity was Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. Some of you read that. It had an impact on you. It was exciting. Uh, but Remember, and, and I've met Hal, he's a good man, he loves Jesus, but he also predicted that Jesus was coming back in 84. And it's funny, because Jesus actually seemed to say, if I remember correctly, that nobody, not even him, knew when the Son of Man would return. So I kind of always have based it based on, if Jesus doesn't know when Jesus is coming back, <laughs> uh, why would I guess when he's coming back? And at the same time, what I really came to at the end of that, and we have to be careful of pendulum swings, I live in a, in a city that is, that is probably the first truly post-Christian city in the United States. Closest city I've ever come to, to that reflects Portland is, is Stockholm. It's highly, highly educated. It's extremely white, like the whitest city in the U.S. Do you know where the white, the only variation we have in our city is facial hair. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's extremely progressive. People, kids are overeducated. You have, you have college-educated kids with multiple degrees working as baristas, you know, and they're cynical, and they're wanting to look for holes. If I want to create, um, if I want to feed cynicism, I could make prophecy my, my, main, my mainstay in the church. It's, it's not helpful. I don't care, actually how Jesus is coming back. I just care that he is coming back because that I know for sure. Uh, I don't care who the Antichrist is. I just believe that the spirit of Antichrist is already present and I do believe that it'll manifest itself ultimately in some 
some diabolical figurehead, but even pastors on staff at my church don't even agree with me on that. And that's okay because that's not an essential. The essential is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel. And so Paul is urging Timothy, listen, it's tempting. It's very tempting to give ourselves to peripheral issues because peripheral issues often are a means by which we hide the the, the shallowness of our actual experience with the living Christ. And he says, we have to advance God's work, which is by faith. And he says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So here he begins with how to do this daunting task of maintaining the centrality of the gospel. And he begins here, he says, the goal of the command is love. And we have to begin with love because we do have to talk about knowledge. I think that we have villainized uh, intellectual pursuits uh, in the church, uh, in the evangelical church for sure. Uh, and it's actually been, uh, it's, it's been really a shameful, uh, an anti-intellectual thread uh, has ran through evangelicalism over the last 30 years and it's hurt us deeply in our ability to actually actually speak intelligently into the world in which God has called us to participate. But he begins with love. Love has to be the foundation. Remember what he said, knowledge puffs up, but love what? Builds up. It doesn't, love doesn't trump knowledge. It's that knowledge always puffs up, therefore must always be tempered by love. But here's the problem is that we live in an age where our language has been lost. Our understanding even of what scripture means when it says love is 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 vague, it's ambiguous to us because, because our culture functions from what the Greeks called eros. Eros is where we get, it's the root word for erotic. Um, and so we think of it in terms of purely sexuality um, practiced outside of the, con, the constraints of God's good design between one man and one woman in a marriage union. But eros actually has a much broader sweep than that. Really, from a Greek philosophical perspective, Eros just simply means self-possessive love. So that's a much broader scope than just purely sexuality. Self-possessive love that bases its experience in what can be experienced with the senses. And this is the ways that our culture defines love, but I think problematically it's the way that the church often defines love too. Because self-possessive love, when applied to the faith, it turns Jesus not into an end within himself, but a means to an end. So Jesus, under the umbrella of eros, if you're functioning in eros, Jesus for you is a cosmic Santa Claus or a cosmic vending machine. You know, it's like, put your trust in Jesus and he will fulfill your dreams, your desires, your ambitions, your hopes. I see no promises of that. I think God, people say, God has a perfect plan for your life. God has a perfect plan, but for you personally, it can be quite difficult. What do we say to Jeremiah? He never saw a single convert in his entire ministry. He was known as the weeping prophet. He's a big crybaby. And he was a big crybaby because his life was hard, really hard, <laughs> really hard. What do you say to the Christians that were put to death for their faith and watch their own families executed in front of them. Is that a good plan for them? I think that's a really crummy plan. But God's plan is perfect. His plan is perfect. And so Eros reduces, I think, Jesus into a type of idolatry. 
where Jesus becomes a means to self-fulfillment. And that is really problematic. I would argue that that verges on another gospel, if not just blatantly another gospel. Now, the temptation is that we'll all fall into moments where we do that. It's, Jesus, if I work really hard, then you'll give me the woman out there that wants to have a baby. Then you'll give me a child. I actually prayed with a young woman who could not get pregnant, and she had her third miscarriage, and I went to her house, and she was obsessed with finding what unconfessed sin was in her life. And it made me so sad, as if God, I mean, just that's such an unfortunate grid on how God, like God, you think God's punishing you? You think God's killing your pregnancies? I mean, let's not make God responsible for, for the fact that a broken, uh, that a sinful humanity, a broken world means broken bodies, a broken physicality as well, that all of creation groans for its redemption. To see bad grids, bad understanding of love uh, turns, uh, turns into a bad understanding of who God is and what his heart is toward us. Because if, if eros is self-possessive love, you know what's funny? The scriptures, the New Testament never once uses the Greek word eros. It pretends like it doesn't exist. It's completely normal word within the Greek language, and yet the New Testament writers purposefully eradicate it from the Christian conversation because agape is to be the replacement of that. And agape would be defined by self-giving love. And Paul says, if you're going to discipline your devotion, you have to have the right foundation. And the right foundation, Jesus says, the narrow gate, why is it narrow? Because there's only one way to go, which is Christ, which means there's a thousand ways to fall. (laughs) You really think about that. It's like, why only one way? Man, don't ask that question. Ask the question, how do I avoid all the wrong ways? Uh, And and so this this question of agape has to be the foundation. It's self-giving love. What motivates the Christian toward the difficult path, toward climbing the mountain, if you will, is is that there is a right foundation, a right love. I love Jesus because he first loved me. And that agape love must be the defining factor for everything we do. When I learned to play guitar, if I did not love music, I would never have persevered the pain of learning the instrument. But my love of the song trumped the challenge of learning the instrument. The first time I sang in front of a congregation uh, was with my mom when I was 11 years old. I was so terrified. To, I remember feeling like I was going to throw up before, before I sang. But my love of the song helped me overcome my fear of people. And I think that this is the only means by which we will actually persevere as Christians. Someone was asking me last night, actually, I was staying with um, Scotty, and Jessica, and Jessica posed a great question. We've known people in the church that seem to have a genuine understanding of the gospel who seem to really love Christ and then just all of a sudden just totally go south and, and walk away from their faith. So were they, and the question was, were they never saved then to begin with? And I actually, I used to be really heated and very opinionated about once saved, always saved. Or, and, and I'd get into little verbal debates with people that held to the possibility of losing salvation. I actually think it's a dumb debate. I, all I know for sure is that the only certainty that I am a child of God is when I abide in Jesus. 
whether that person is saved or was never actually saved, it doesn't really matter because they're not walking with Jesus right now. And it's not my place to determine who's saved and not saved. It's my place to actually be a witness to the living Christ. And I think that the reason that people fall by the wayside doesn't just happen overnight. Those who come to us to a, a, a seem to be excited about the faith, often there's something faulty in their foundation. And that faulty foundation will play itself out in cracks on the 13th floor. It takes a long time to determine what's actually wrong. And I think that this is, this is something that we need to understand, that a right foundation is a foundation that says, I have received freely something that has worked out for me in spite of myself. In the song that we sang, uh, the second song, Holy Haunt, that's a new song um, uh, off of a record that I'll be releasing in September. And, the, and uh, that wasn't a shameless plug, I promise, because we give the records away for free, so it's not helping me. Uh, so uh, the, the, the second verse really kind of sums up that, Lord, Lord he's like, I give to you my, my, my faith, my, da- my doubts, my strengths. You know what I need. You sort me out. God isn't wanting this or that part of us. He wants our whole person. And we're not going to give our whole person to him if we believe that his love is dependent upon my performance. Because that's eros. That's not agape. So this has to be the foundation. So Paul says that's the goal of the Christian life. But Paul often, if you read all of his letters, we know for a fact that's also the beginning of the Christian life. Everything is to lead us into an ever-deepening knowledge of who Jesus is as a personal reality, the reality in which all other realities hinge. And that has to be the goal as well as the foundation, as well as the means by which we endure the challenge of what is called the Christian life. It's the only thing that will bring authenticity to our community. And it's actually the only thing, the only tangible evidence to an outside world that, that our witness is true. Now, here's the thing. I think churches often get obsessed with trying to figure out how to prove to the outside world that Jesus is real. And, and we're never told to prove anything. We're told to be witnesses. And I think if we would spend more time actually looking at our own personal relationships with Christ and less time being concerned with how others are living and what others aren't doing and how I can win people over, what we should begin with. And if the church just did this, I think we'd see a tremendous amount of fruit. If the world would just be convinced that we believe what we say we believe, that would be a good starting point. So, Paul says that the goal is love But then he says, and this is how it's achieved. The goal is love through faith. But he says, and this is done by a, first of all, a pure heart. Now, let me ask you the question. How do you define the word pure? How do you define the word pure? Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do you define that word? Well, pure often, in our mindset, means perfection. But you can have pure wine if you're a wine drinker. And you know it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. It just means that it's one thing. And I think that it's the simplifying of our interests to a few. It's really, it's not even that. It's not stripping away all the things in our lives that, uh, that we care about and like. It's actually, it's realigning our lives. This is what submit, the word submit means in scripture. It's realigning ourselves under a new 
authority, essentially. And pure in the Greek literally just means single-mindedness. Single-mindedness. That immediately takes us to something that's really important is it actually connects, it connects the Christian life with the importance of right thinking. Now, this is where, why I started with love is because if I was to not start with the foundation of agape love, it would be very, very easy to say that I'm elevating the intellect to a place of unhealthy proportions, and that's not my goal. I do not believe that spiritual illumination is dependent upon intellectual capacity. But I do believe that, that intellectual focus is desperately needed in the church today, and we need not be afraid of the intellect if the intellect is truly under the lordship of Jesus, a mind, because knowledge puffs up, therefore knowledge must be tempered by love, and that's why Peter says in 2 Peter, add to your faith knowledge. Knowledge is important. I think that anti-intellectualism, especially within charismatic circles, is that, is that the Holy Spirit needs to be able to bypass the mind. Where? Anywhere. Show me anywhere in the Bible that we're told to do that. We're told to take every thought captive into the obedience of Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not bypass the mind. The Holy Spirit is a teacher. He doesn't just implant into your heart and mind information that wasn't first put there. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he says, the helper, when he comes, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Notice there is already a teacher can only, it doesn't matter how good the teacher is. The question, if you're feeling like, well, I'm not growing as a Christian, the the problem is not your teacher. You just might be a really crummy student. I know what it's like to be a crummy student. I was a complete underachiever in every arena of my life. I started off with a four point. I ended with a 1.7. I actually didn't even technically leave my high school with a diploma. I had to go back to a community college to get my diploma. No intellectual pursuits, I promise you. There was pharmaceutical pursuits, <laughs> but no intellectual pursuits. And, and I wasted my 20s and got saved radically at 28. And that was when the... The purity of heart wasn't that I was perfect by far. There was so much. I was so raw. I got so excited about Jesus when I first got saved. I just found myself yelling expletives because I didn't know that I shouldn't. Uh, and I, I, I actually, just looking out, my dear friend, um, Ronnie, I, when I lived down here, I remember he was new to the faith and, and just like his excitement for Jesus was infectious, but he, him and many of his friends, they had, they had little sailor mouths. And they, but they didn't, their faith was so much more pure than most Christians that had figured out how not to swear, but Jesus was absolutely missing in their lives. It's like, and God worked that stuff out. That's peripheral stuff. The spirit will work that stuff out. And my responsibility when I was pastoring that group was just to bring them to the center of the cross, bring them to Jesus. The cross will do its deadly work in the peripherals of living. But the knowledge, the, the, the purity of my heart, the purity of what I saw in Ronnie's heart at that time was just a single-minded desire to know Jesus. I always said the greatest gift that God gave me as a, as a leader of the church, and maybe the only real gift, is that I actually love Jesus. But I think that's a pretty compelling gift to the church. And I think that the intellectual pursuits then, the desire to grow 
in my ability to take thoughts captive, that's where the rub is because it's challenging. What does Paul say? Based upon all the theology that I just got done telling you in Romans 1 through 8, he says to the Roman church, I beseech you, in chapter 12, verse 1, by the mercy of God, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice to Christ. Submit yourself each day. Every day there's a decision. Who's going to be God? Is it going to be me or is it going to be Jesus? And he says, present yourself a living sacrifice. And he says, being transformed, the word metamorphosis, the metamorphosis of the mind through the renewing of the mind, the transformation of the mind. Purity of heart is a very ancient world way of saying a focused brain. Now, you want to know what the problem is with that today? Because how do we If the goal is love, how can we move toward that goal and from that goal if if we have undisciplined minds? And how do we compel a how do we compel a society that isn't even functioning from a grid that there is a God out there somewhere, but now functions from a third option, which is which is totally contrary to anything before 150 years ago? Is that the the new option is that all intrinsic meaning and value in life can be derived from my own experience? And what this has given rise to is an intellectual lethargy, not only in the church, but in society as a whole. And the church can't combat it unless we, unless we give ourselves to a right understanding, to a pursuit of things that actually, friends, requires a tremendous amount of focus. And we live in the ADD age. We are driven to distraction. According to the time I've been preaching already, uh, if TED Talks are right, you actually tuned out 15 minutes ago already. Functional illiteracy, according to Chris Hedges in The Empire of Illusion in, in North America, is epidemic. You know, there are 27 million Americans who are, who are not able to read well enough to even, to even complete a job application. 7 million illiterate. 30 million can't read a simple sentence. 50 million read at a fourth or fifth grade level. The third of the population, nation's population is illiterate or barely literate, a figure that is growing by more than 2 million a year. A third of high school graduates never read another book for the rest of their lives and neither do 42% of all college graduates. Now that, friends, is disturbing. Especially, what, the, what impact does that have on our society? Purity of heart is the antithesis of intellectual laziness. We talk a lot about sexual sin. We talk a lot about, about, these, about really bad things. The church doesn't spend nearly enough time talking about the atrocious sin of laziness and how it destroys our, our witness and our testimony. Chris Hedges said that we have replaced we have replaced our language with the triumph of spectacle. That we are a people that are driven by image and what makes us feel good. And that is a damaging thing, especially if we are moving toward that kind of level of illiteracy. And at my church, you can really feel it. Our church is it's millennials. And so we don't even have people, people don't bring Bibles to church. 
They're reading the scriptures on their phones. But their phones, scripture is one app that they maybe use on Sunday that is, that is always in competition with Instagram, with, with Snapchat, with Facebook, with all the other multitudes of social media. Our information is given to us in small little bits, um, fragmented ideas that create so much mental confusion that to be able to discern the still soft voice of God becomes nearly impossible amongst the thousands of voices that are vying for your attention. And the problem with that is that we have been given God's thoughts in the form of a really, really big book. (laughs) That's really hard for those of you that don't like to read. Man, being a Christian then becomes a challenge, doesn't it? (laughs) And I think, you know why the Dark Ages were called the Dark Ages? Because... Common people were not allowed the ability to learn to read. Do you know why the Reformation happened? Is that the scriptures were placed into the hands of the common people for the first time. And it's like, and the Dark Ages means that we, it's dark. We don't know much about it. Uh, and one of the gifts of the Reformation, which you and I are sitting here, is that, is that there was a reintroduction of the scriptures that, that the common person, God intended his word to be known and understood by his people. And if I was to ask how many of you have never even read your Bible in its entirety, and you've been Christians your whole lives, it would be, it would be shameful. And that's not to shame you. It's, it's, it's a problem across the board because everything in us in our society says that that is a waste of time and energy. If it can't be done quickly, it's not worth doing is the motto of our age. And so intellectual lethargy is what has taken the place, I believe, in the church of a pure heart. And a pure heart is a mind that is devoted and focused It's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, it's relational knowledge, a knowledge that leads us into an ever-deepening understanding of Christ. And here's the thing. So for me, I'm an overachiever now because I'm trying to make up for all the years of being an underachiever. And so I have a rule of thumb. I live in a very intellectually savvy city that does a lot of really stupid things because it's morally dead and dark. And so I have a responsibility to understand the very people that God has called me to minister to. And so I always am doing this, and this is, I'm not telling you to do this, but I always am reading a book of literature. I try to read a novel a week, a, a book of poetry, always going, a book of nonfiction, always, and a book of theology, always, on top of my daily reading of the scriptures. And the purpose of that is that I didn't have the benefit of going to college, so there's a need to self-educate. But really, I love it, because all of it, it's like that would be all pointless if, if I was viewing Christ through the lens of the culture I live in, but what I'm doing is I'm actually looking at culture, I'm analyzing culture through the lens of Christ. And people think, you can't be a Christian and read other books, really? Because Daniel, the great prophet, God blessed his understanding in all of the ways of Babylon, all of them. And he did it without compromise. The answer is not cloistering ourselves from the culture in which we live. The answer is not assimilating to the culture in which we live. The answer is understanding the world in which we live through the lens of the living Christ who is with us, who will never leave us nor forsake us. It begins with the foundation of love, but a pure heart is a focused mind. And I'm, I'm not telling you to go out and read. And when I say literature, I'm not talking about Daniel Steele, Okay. I think that the importance of recapturing what is quickly being lost within our culture, which is language, our understanding of language altogether, 
um, is really, really problematic because the gospel actually, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Words actually seem to matter in God's economy. Jesus himself is the word, the living word. Second, there is, there is what he calls a good conscience. Intellectual laziness or lethargy leads to moral ambiguity. And we see moral ambiguity played out in the church all the time. And it is very, very problematic where the church looks more like the world than it does like the church. The church should stand, it should be in the world, but it still is to stand apart from the world. It's to be a city on a hill. It's to be a lamp that's not hidden under a basket. How do we reflect or witness to the reality of Jesus is that we need a good conscience, which means that we live what we learn, we live. For the Jewish mind, to know a truth, to live it and love it, were all the same thing. Jesus... Jesus' audience would have understood this. They wouldn't have said that I know something unless they actually were obedient to what is true. And I think that moral ambiguity needs to be replaced in the church with a good conscience. And you want to know how ambiguous our culture is right now? How morally ambiguous it is? We thought we could stop moral ambiguity through legislation. That shows how naive the church was. The worst misstep in evangelical history was the Christian right of the 80s. You know why? It's not that they didn't have good hearts or good intentions. It's that they didn't understand a fundamental issue. Is that by the time something comes to law, it has already been decided by the people because it's shaped by culture and entertainment. By the time legislation, by the time gay marriage was on legislation... It was already decided in the public's mind because we had, been, we had been shaped by the entertainment we'd been taking in for 15 years before that came. We had already been shaped and modified. We had been assimilated into the culture's thinking. And then the church doesn't know what to do. And I think that this is, we can't put our heads in the sand like ostriches in the cartoons. I don't know if they actually do that. Uh, <laughs> I just realized that I actually don't know if they do that. Uh, but I think that this is the, the problem, that moral ambiguity comes out of this new broken social narrative in which we live, in which the cult of self dominates our cultural landscape. You know, 50 years ago, they did a survey of a bunch of high school students, and they asked what their primary goals in life were. At that point, fame actually was not a goal. In 2008, fame has become one of the top five goals of most high school students. Andy Warhol, the modernist um, artist from New York, said there will be a day when every person will be famous for 15 minutes. We have entered that age, have we not? Isn't that what the purpose of our Instagrams are? How many of you, you know what's really disturbing, when, we, when you want to know if you have been infiltrated by the culture of I, of me, all you have to do, it's really a bummer that our phones do this. I hated this when Apple decided that on the, on the photo app that it would keep track of how many selfies you take. It's really, I mean, you should get bummed every time that number goes up. And it's like, think about it. Our grandparents, the thought of them, some of you are grandparents. You don't even know what I'm talking about right now. And you are blessed for that. <laughs> you are blessed. But what it is is our phone tells us how many times we turn the camera this way. 
to take another awesome shot of ourselves. And nobody's putting up home, you know, like, I'm going to take some real ugly pictures. Nobody's just like snapping a shot right, out of, right after you rolled out of bed and you're like, that needs to go for the whole, my whole world to see. No, you're, you're looking, you're, you've already figured out what the best angle is according to your own mindset about who you are. And some of you have more selfies than any other photo in your photo library. How many of you, you know how many Christian Instagrams I've seen where they'll like say, they'll have hashtag blessed, but it's another picture of themselves. What's, what are you blessed by? Jesus or you? And I think that this is the problem is that we don't even, they're not even aware of it. That's a moral ambiguity. It's not, they're out, you know, we were Christians yesterday and today we're shooting up heroin in the alleys. No, it's much more subtle and it's actually much, much more damaging than that. It's what actually eradicates a sense of community within the church. So a good conscience is necessary, which means when you grow in relational knowledge of Jesus, obey what you, what you do know and you'll know what to do. Finally, he says, he says this, he says, you need a sincere faith. And I think that once again, we've lost our understanding of, of what faith means because the antithesis of a sincere faith is a spiritual darkness, a spiritual darkness that has overcome the land and has often infiltrated the church. And that spiritual darkness is because we do not understand the essence of true faith. Faith is not the belief that Jesus exists. The demons do that. They're totally orthodox. They know the Bible's better than you and I, and they believe it more than we do. True faith is a is a true and total dependence upon the living Christ for everything that is. And so this sincere faith, if I could close it with this way, is that, is that a sincere faith in Christ it requires a pure heart, which is, which is a, a, a focused mind that puts Jesus as the central theme of our lives that leads to, that leads to a, a clean conscience. I am living what I know that I might know what to live. And that should bring us around, and he started with faith, and he ends with faith, because faith is a disposition, it's an attitude toward Christ that allows Christ to be Christ, and in through us. And if I could define that in simple terms, if you put your faith in an airplane, you're not saying that you believe it exists. You're saying you believe that if you get on this thing called an airplane, that the law of gravity, which holds you to the earth, can be broken by a new law, the law of aerodynamics. Our faith in the airplane, what do you do for the airplane? Not a thing, except get on it. Now, you can be terrified of flying, but if you have enough faith to get you on the plane, it will still get you from point A to point B. But I like to define faith this way. The size of your faith will define the enjoyment of the ride. And you know how faith grows? by understanding the object in which you place the faith. The more you understand that turbulence is not going to kill you because you've taken the time to read on it, which is what I did because I used to be terrified of flying, the more my enjoyment of flying was able to increase and my fear of flying diminished. I think the same goes for Jesus. If we do not take the time to get to know Christ, we cannot love him and serve him. If we don't take the time to get to know him, our faith will continue to be a weak thing that is constantly stumbling and failing because if there's only one path and it's a difficult path and there's a thousand ways to fall, then we've got to grow in our relationship to Jesus and that requires a daily surrender of one's whole person. Lord Jesus, not my will be done, but thy will be done. It's actually taking a look at all the things that I give myself to because this is how you should live. When it says, take every thought into the obedience of Christ, 
captivity into the obedience of Christ. It's not saying think, only think thoughts about Jesus. It's saying recognizing Jesus is always with you and viewing everything in your life through his lens, through his grid. We are told that we have the mind of Christ and that requires a daily dependence upon him that says, Jesus, whatever I can't think about you while I'm doing, I'm gonna get rid of. That frees you up to do a lot of things maybe you thought you couldn't do and it actually shows you other things that you need to put away. Whatever cannot come into alignment with God's kingdom purposes must either be conformed to his kingdom or it must go. That is how we ought to live as a church. And all of these things, guys, a pure heart, good conscience, a sincere faith, you won't even pursue it if you don't first believe in the depths of your being that Jesus Christ loves you even on your worst stinking day. You're not gonna do it if you don't believe that he gave his life away for you. And that love must motivate us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as a community of faith that his love might be known throughout the community where God has placed us. I pray that reliance brings, that God uses it as a catalyst for revival in the Inland Empire of California the land of dirt and, and other awesome things. <laughs> if you like dirt bikes, it's, it rules. <laughs> I think that this is the call, guys. I know that was a fire hose. I don't get to come down very often, so whatever. Something hit you, I'm sure. Because the spirit is good in spite of our weakness.